Welcome to our session on bringing up daughters. I thought we would start by looking at the family unit. In recent decades, our idea of family has broadened to embrace all kinds of households. Same-sex parents, adoptive parents, men and women who... Welcome to our session on bringing up daughters. I thought we would start by looking at the family unit. In recent decades, our idea of family has broadened to embrace all kinds of households. Same-sex parents, adoptive parents, men and women who take time out of their career. Welcome to our session on bringing up daughters. I thought we would start by looking at the family unit. In recent decades, our idea of family has broadened to embrace all kinds of households. Same-sex parents, adoptive parents, men and women who take time out of their careers to be stay-at-home parents, working parents, single parents. Every one of them has a different life experience and something unique to contribute to parenting. Maya, as the daughter of two mothers, you've written about your frustration about being asked so often whether you miss having a father. Did growing up with same-sex attracted parents change the way you see yourself and your potential as a woman? Um, yeah, I think definitely. You know, like in my family, we're all women. Like, even dogs are girl. So, um, you know, and I grew up in a family where um, I had two you know, powerful, strong females to show me the many countless and exciting ways to do femininity. Um, and I think that, you know, that just goes to show that, you know, whatever behavior you take on, it means you can, you can do anything because, you know, one of my mothers, you know, mows the lawn and the other one, you know, likes to cook and they both taught me to drive and, um, you know, there's no separation according to gender in my family. Um, and that's really exciting. Um, I also grew up in a family where, um, you know, like, we always talked about every, like, small injustice, you know, that ever, ever happened. So, like, we'd, for an example, like, we'd pick up the phone and my mum would always, you know, be greeted by the voice that said, you know, can I talk to Mr. or Mrs. Newell? And she'd always make a point in front of me of saying, um, it's Ms. Newell, and there is no man in this house. You know? <laughs> um, and I think that, you know, a moment like that would also be, you know, followed by a discussion of how, um, you know, like men get the, get the privacy, I suppose, of not being, you know, known if they're, you know, married or not. And women always have to, you know, um, have that uh, information available. And it's these small conversations which I suppose have, you know, developed a large part of who I am and what I stand for and what I believe in. Um, but yeah, I can talk about Excellent. Well, Nigel, you've written a lot about taking time off from the corporate rat race to become more involved in parenting. Did doing that change your perspective on parenting and particularly on parenting you girls? Um, in terms of parenting girls, not, not really. Yeah. Because, I mean, because I, I, didn't, I didn't have any views. So they couldn't be changed because I'm sort of making it up as I go along. Um, but in terms of parenting per se, uh, you know, I was that classic corporate warrior, idiotic male who thought it was all very easy. And, you know, one week in, I wanted to kill myself because I, you know, couldn't get it all right. So I just realised how hard it was. Mm. And uh, Barbara, for you, I was really interested in the fact that your book, Because I Love You, was updated from your original 1997 book of advice for daughters. Did you find that writing the book or adapting it 15 years later meant that you needed to really respond to social changes 
We've certainly experienced many changes in relation to cyber world. So for, with my work in young girls, I see parents particularly concerned around issues about cyberbullying, sexting. There can almost be hysteria around the fact that we're creating a generation of girls and their childhood is shrinking. So did you feel a need to respond to that? And if so, how? Not really, because my girls were considerably older and they were very able to look after themselves. So the changes that occurred between one book and the next were mainly in me. Mm. where I had grown old by 15 years and become much less convinced about my parenting skills, and, but still had the <laughs> same hysteria that I had when I was in my full-blown mothering mm. and still wanted to protect them from absolutely everything. So poor things got the brunt of me saying, never sexed. If you email, never hit reply all. I mean, it was all stuff that they knew and had coming out of their ears, but it was kind of new to me, and I thought I had to tell them because I'd always been bossy and controlling, and uh, these things just don't pass. You just mentioned something then that I often experience. I've written two parenting books, and so whenever my daughter's upset with me, she'll say things to me like, hmm, this will be interesting in the new chapter, won't it? And uh, likes to throw my supposed expertise in my face. How challenging is it to be a parent, particularly of girls, who can be incredibly, you know, astute at critiquing, and often rightly so. I mean, they pick up our flaws and highlight them to us. So how challenging has that been? It, it, well, it, it was less challenging when I thought I was always right. Yes. Uh, I think that for a large part of my um, parenting, um, I think I was a bitch of a mother probably, because I always thought I was right. I was very, very controlling um, and not humble. My own mother was incredibly humble, mm. and, uh, which wasn't to say that she was a wimp, but it's just that she always made it out that we were kind of somehow, um, we knew more than she did. And I never allowed my children the privilege of knowing more than I did. <laughs> <laughs> but, but now I can totally see that they really do. I mean, mm. the, most, um, the biggest learning curve for me as a mother has been since they've been grown up, where I realized that I, we did flukishly produce these fantastic girls, all of whom are, um, are very articulate and powerful women who all know miles more than I do, because I, as you will quickly discern, know almost nothing about anything. And um, it's great for me. It's fantastic. Mm. But you do have to become humble, which is not great for me. It's very difficult. Do you think the notion of parenting has become something that's almost a social construct, it's almost become an industry, this parenting industry. I mean, if you go into bookshops, there's book, including mine, I mean, there's, there's books on this subject. Do you think our parents worried about that as much as we do? What do you think, Nigel? Uh, I mean, gross uh, generalisation here, and, and, and yeah. I'm the non-expert, I'm not just the only man, I'm the, the only non-expert here. It yeah. is, I think my parents' generation under-parented, and, mm. and my generation over-parents. And I think, hopefully, my kids, my four kids, generation will you know get it get it in the middle but I mm. think we you know the, the amount of time and, and money and focus spent on stuff which is, go it's, is going over their heads mm. in reality it's about giving them the right values discipline love sending them out into the world with confidence and courage and compassion and joy and all the other stuff is sort of details mm. I, I, I think and I look at my my four kids I've got two sons and two twin daughters and my eldest uh, son, I completely overparented, and my younger son, I've completely underparented, and and trust me, there's not a correlation on how well they're doing. Well, there's an inverse one, but there's not a, a, mm. a positive correlation. Mm. Maya, what do you think? Did your mothers feel the need to perhaps overparent, or did they take this role particularly seriously, given they were almost reinventing? Um. 
I think my parents were probably pretty relaxed parents, actually. I actually mm. asked this, this question to them the other day, and I was like, you know, did you, like, worry about stuff, you know, because you, there weren't many other parents, you know, mm. same-sex parents doing this at the time. And they were like, oh, we were in our 20s. We just wanted a kid and just <laughs> had one, and, you know, it was pretty straightforward, really. And I was like, oh, but I want you to worry. What did you, what did you think about me? Um, but, yeah, I, I've, I've always felt that, my parents were very fair, you know? Like, they were never the really strict parents at school that only, you know, make their kids... I had to come home at 10 o'clock at night or something at a party, or, you know, they were never the parents that just sort of let me go, you know, free reign. Um, they had rules and restrictions, but they, you know, I always knew that it was fair. Nice. Well, saying it is all about women, I thought I'd ask a few questions that were more specifically feminist and gender orientated. In her book, Leaning In, Facebook COO Sheryl Sandberg cites research that show that parents treat sons and daughters very differently. Sandberg says that when a girl tries to lead, she's often labelled as bossy. I know I certainly was. Boys are seldom called bossy because a boy taking the lead as a boss doesn't surprise or offend anyone. She argues the fact we treat girls and boys differently from a young age is one of the reasons that we have so few women in leadership positions. Do you think that parents can subconsciously restrict the opportunities of their daughters? God, no. I think that's a horrible thought. Mm. I don't think... That, I mean, having had three daughters and there was no comparing um, them to the way I would have raised mm. a boy, and our genetic, our DNA in our family, all of our, the women are very strong women and mm. would be inclined to leadership, I think, and nobody's ever told them not to. Mm. My mother, who I keep saying was a paragon, but she was, raised us all to believe we could do anything if we chose to do it, and we all believed her. Mm. Um, and uh, I think it seemed to me when I was raising girls that you'd let them believe they could do anything that they wanted to do, and they all kind of have, and they've made very, very good decisions. But I don't, I think that's something that you just, it's almost an unconscious thing that you do. I can't imagine too many women in this auditorium, for example, who would in any way suggest to their girls that they're less able to or less wanting to lead. I think it's a personality thing. Lots of people just don't want to lead because it's not their nature to lead. But mm. anybody who's inclined to, male or female, I think probably can. I'm, I'm just not sure that I'm very comfortable with the notion that there's a blanket thing that says, it really is hard for girls to lead. I know that it seems to be true that they don't, but perhaps there are more factors involved than uh, the world telling them that they're, they're not entitled to or they'll be punished somewhere or another if they do. Right. Well, if we look at the toy aisles, for example, I mean, starting from very young, they're incredibly gendered. I mean, there's the pink aisle, it's very passive with the Sleeping Beauties and the Pretty Barbies, and then there's the male aisle, which is all building blocks and action figures. Did your parents try and combat some of those gender stereotypes for you, Maya? Um, yeah. I like that you're giggling. I've got a feeling the answer's going to be yes. Yeah, I mean, I always say that when I was, you know, very, very young, like, was the first time, when I was about, my third birthday, I think, was the first time my parents ruined my life, which was that, you know, to their dismay, I was this young child who loved pink and, like, you know, really, you know, got into my fairy castles and tutus and, and you know, they'd just be like the mermaid in the bath for, like, hours and hours. And, <laughs> and they, you know, I think my mum really believed um, that, you know, gender is culturally determined and that, um, you know, it's, it's not nature. And I think in some ways I still believe that because we grow up in, a, you know, a society which is very gendered regardless of what your parents, you know, instill in you. Um, but on this birthday, right, they were like, okay, we're going we're gonna to hold this experiment. So everyone has to bring her, like, 
trucks and cars and blue clothes. And they thought they were being really like, you know, sneaky here. And, and I just, I think I just cried the whole day. You know? <laughs> um, and then spent the majority of the next day, you know, transforming my car park into a fairy, fairy castle or something like that. Um, but I think that, yeah, it's an interesting point. Like while I think that, you know, I went through various stages, you know, I, had, I did have my stage where I tied my, you know, sarong to my hair to pretend to be Ariel because my mum's chucked it short, you know, and then I had, you know, a stage where I really liked to climb trees and, you know, wear bike shorts and, you know, play with boys. And, and I think we just go through these, you know, stages in life. And I think, you know, to be a feminist parent, um, it doesn't mean that you're, you know, you have to push your boys into wearing, you know, pink and you have to, and your girls have to like, you know, play with trucks or um, later in life, you know, that your girls have to be leaders, you know. Um, it just means you have to, and a friend of mine said this to me actually, um, who's also a gaby, and she said, you know, like we have, you just need to say here are all the colors and here are mm. all the toys and, and you can choose and they're all available to you. Um, but yeah, we get pushed into like, you know, being one extreme or the other and feeling disappointed when it, when it doesn't work out how you, mm. how you want it to. Love that. Nigel, yeah. you're part of the advertising juggernaut <laughs> that we're subjected to every day. <laughs> Do you feel that our children are very much at the mercy of marketers? And if so, how did you try and combat that as a parent? Yeah, I, I mean, much to, to back up what uh, Maya said, is for me, I, I think the, the role, uh, and again, this is just speaking personally, I'm not an expert in this, the role that Kate and I think of being parents is to try and teach our kids how to think, not, not what to think. Mm. And, and that can be quite challenging as parents. You've got to, you've got to let go because, you know, teach you to think you may choose the truck or the, the, or the fairy costume, whatever else, but trying to bring up independent adults. And, and, and I, I sort of think that the answers to this conference hopefully will be answered by the next generation who will have better answers than we will have if we educate them to, to think. It's not about an outcome. It, I, I'm very nervous when people go in saying, but I want you to be you know, a, a female CEO or a, or a male ballet dancer. You haven't actually, which is terrifying as a parent, you haven't actually got the right to define what your kids should be. You're trying to give them the best chance in, in life, give them every opportunity. So, so I've got two boys and, and, and two girls, and it is challenging sometimes subconsciously. I'll ask my boys to take the rubbish out, not mm. my girls. Mm. I mean, I, I haven't thought it through. If you just think, so Kate will say, why do you always ask Alex to take the rubbish? And so then next time I'll say, Grace, you take it out, and she'll complain, whatever else. But it is to try and trust, you know, you have, have the, the courage to expect greatness of our children. Mm. And, and try and, I mean, I, this is the wrong audience and conference to say this to, but try and look beyond gender. I know they're all looking at me, but, but and, and, and probably that's the next generation that, that does that. But I, but I hope in, you know, when, when my daughters are, uh, are our age, you know, Telstra isn't talking about how many female board directors they've got, they're talking about how many good board directors they've got. And, and, and I know things have got to go, you know, historically, you know, that takes a long time, but, but I sort of think this is stage, whatever it is on the, the feminist journey, stage eight, and stage nine is, is making it non-gender. Well, interestingly, I was next, next going to ask you about the big F word, feminism. Um, in my work with young girls, I find that it's not a particularly popular term. So if I was to say to a group of schoolgirls, how many of you would identify as being feminist? 
there'd only be a very small handful of girls who mm. would raise their hand. I mean, by the time they finished working with us, they're very proudly amen-sistering me because we deconstruct that for them. Yeah. But I think it's very interesting that it doesn't always have a good reputation. So is it time for us to reignite the conversation around feminism in our homes? And if so, how might we do that, Barbara? Hmm. I'm not even too sure what you mean. What do you mean by feminism now? How would you define it in today's terms? Gosh, that's a really good question. I mean, I think it's very much about... Well, Maya? I'm thinking, thinking like, you know, like lesbians holding placards running down the street. <laughs> that's yeah. what the image that jumps yeah. to my mind. But well, but I'm yeah. not sure. I, I'd be interested to your answer. So when you ask me the question, what's the term actually mean? Yeah. For me, uh, really engaging girls, for me as a young woman, discovering feminism was discovering my home. And it really helped shape for me how I would view myself and my relationships. And it was about justice. And so for young girls, when they hear the word feminist, they do have all these very negative media-generated stereotypes about what that might mean. So they don't think of it as a home place. They think of it as being a little bit frightening or a little bit intimidating or a little bit non-accessible. And really, we can all own it and we can all have our own brand of feminism, but there are some fundamentals that I think we need to agree on in terms of women being equal to men, not necessarily better, but I think that that core belief that there is still lots of work to do, it's easy to be complacent, um, is critical for me to get across to young women that we can't be complacent, the work is not yet done, and raising awareness about what those issues still really are. And I find it as a very powerful tool. Hmm. Well, as a, as a mother um, raising three daughters, then to me it was just a given that um, a sense of their own um, worth was mm. fundamental to the way you wanted them to be raised, that they mm. understood themselves to be, to have the same um, entitlements as any man and to be treated with the same respect, um, to be offered the same opportunities. It was just a given. It was never... But it's not a given that society will give them that. It's a given that they have the right to expect it. But certainly their experience in society will be quite different to that. Mm -hmm. Well, I, speaking for myself, I can't, and um, I was obviously born the generation ahead of them, I never was particularly... Um, I don't think I was ever, I ever experienced any sort of prejudice where I thought I can't proceed because I'm a woman or I'm being treated badly because I was a woman. Having said that, there were, in our generation, men were incredibly free and easy with their sexual advances and mm. inappropriate remarks, which now they would never get away with. And, it, and for my generation, you just had to learn to batter away and think they were absolutely ridiculously absurd people, which you did. But for me, there weren't that many experiences that I had to pass on to the girls to say, be careful here because this isn't going to be fair and you're going to have to be up against it. I think in all of our lives, you're going to have senses of injustice related to both being a woman or just being alive. You know, mm -hmm. just being, living in a um, you know, failing democracy, you can mm -hmm. find things that are so frustrating. And in a way, identifying myself with any injustices uh, according to my gender kind of rankles with me. Obviously, you know, it's a given. I mean, I've got four kids. Two of them are girls, two of them are boys. I love them all equally and they've all got... I mean, it's just a non-debate. No. Non but the issue for me is, is about, it's about humanism. I mean, we're, we're sort of earthlings. I don't, I don't self-define... I mean, obviously, I'm a man and blah, blah, blah. But you go, yeah, but I'm, but I'm a human on this little tennis ball hurtling through space is how I think the future is going to be, where your daughters have all the options available to them that any other human should have. And then to make sure when you, you raise your daughters, you don't confuse you know, theory and idealism with, with some of the stuff that they are going to see. Because just because mm. something's right doesn't necessarily mean you should do it. 
So when I'm talking to Grace and Eve, when they are slightly older, they have every right to dress in a certain way and go to work. And maybe in 100 years' time, it would make no difference. But it's our job as loving parents in the real world to say, well, sweetheart, if you do go to the office dressed like that, you will be judged in a certain way. And yes, it's wrong, but it's also the reality. So it's, it's sort of tiptoeing the time. I want to get my in here. I think that, um, you know, I th it's, it's, it's not that great messages just, as, just to say that, you know, we're being humanists here and we're just like treating everyone equal because the reality is that we do live in a world which mm -hmm. is sexist in many ways and, and there are so many like everyday moments, you know, in my life and I think in all women's life when you're faced with like some pretty blatant, um, you know, sexism and you have to, as a woman, I think it's so important that parents provide their children with the tools to talk about it and be honest and open and have be able to speak, you know, and I think in, in my family that was something which was always modelled, you know, mm. um, and even on little things like, for example, you know, just on the phone or, um, you know, for another example was that I remember, like you say, year eight or something, and I came to school and I just got over the whole, like, you know, uncomfortableness of just getting my period. And I'd come into school and my girlfriends and I'd be like, oh, I just started bleeding today. My boobs are really sore and, you know, all of this. And, and I remember, you know, my friends just being like, that is so shocking. Like, you don't talk about your flow in such a, you know, open <laughs> way. Like, what the hell? And, um, one of my friends in particular, she was like, well, in my house, like, I, you know, don't, I just don't put, leave my, you know, tampons in the bathroom because in case my, you know, my, bro my brother or my father might see it. And mm. she remembers, like, wrapping it up and, like, being really embarrassed, or leaving the bathroom, holding something and stuffing it in the bottom of the kitchen bin and, and, and you know, being embarrassed that her father would have to go shopping to, to buy tampons for her. And, like, in my house... You just, that's like dinner time conversation, you know? It's mm. like, oh God, you know, women's stuff. And, and for all, all of my friends, there's a sense of like women's business, you know? Mm. And I think that um, even me being a part of that, you know, my, my friends at school created a space where we would all talk about these things and become more confident about it and then talk about it with guys because, hey, like, you know, it's important for them to know what we go through mm. and that's part of being a woman and being a man in the world today. And um, yeah, I just, I think that, the, yeah, I think the most important thing that in terms of feminism that my parents have given me is, yeah, is the ability to speak about little things and not feel embarrassed about being a woman. Because they're actually huge things. And I love that you've just touched on a point that's really important to me. In my work with girls, we always ask them at the, at the end of the day with us, what did you think today would be like? And they inevitably say, we thought you'd be just another boring old bag giving us a lecture. Or something like, you know, we thought you'd be this really hideous old woman shaming us. And then they write, no offence, in brackets. Why would I be offended that they thought I'd be a boring old bag? Um, but how can we engage our girls to these incredibly important messages in a way that will have meaning for them without patronising or policing them? Nigel, you're a marketing man. How can we engage young girls? Gosh, I, I'm not sure I'm, I'm the right person to throw to. And I haven't been in the ad business for three years, just before uh, the, the audience starts throwing things. Um, That's uh, no excuse, Nigel. No excuse. No, no, <laughs> no, no, no apologies. I mean, I, I, I'm just making it up as I go. I mean, so, so I'm not speaking as an expert. I'm just speaking as a, yep. as a father and a family man. I, I, we just, yep. 
sort of approach each each day as it, as it comes. But when um, it's interesting you're talking about you know, you know first periods and things. My wife was you know on a girls' weekend in Melbourne when both my twin girls had their first period. Brilliant. Uh, um, but the, but it was brilliant because there you go. Well, you know just just deal with it. I mean that's you know and and for me sometimes it can go it can go sort of too much the other way where you haven't actually got to talk about certain stuff in every in, in every you know that th there's there is levels of comfortableness that are completely fine for people to have in different ways not to make people feel shame that's completely wrong but you know maybe i don't want to talk about periods over the over dinner and and so that, that's, yes. that's that that's sort of so it's just a sort of to be to to destigmatize and be comfortable in a family home. It, it's you, I, I'm from, I was sent at the age of five to an all boys boarding school. I haven't got a sister, I've only got one brother. My mother, when she got engaged, this, this is completely true, it's not a joke, she had to resign because that's what you did when you got engaged, you had to resign. No one thought that was unusual. That was just the world in the late 40s in, in Britain. So I come from a very, very traditional male, old school sort of upbringing yet what I'm living is I've got you know a wife and two sons and two daughters and it's a generational change it's sort of it's just I don't want to these things are so important but sometimes by sometimes sort of getting on with life in a in a loving strong way is the best way and then letting giving people, just like your daughter's turning out how they turned out, I don't know them, but that's not, I mean, you look lovely, it's not because you're fantastic, they just yeah. turn, it's because they're fantastic. Absolutely true. Yeah, that's and, and true. so, mm. you know, you, well, you can relax not to have the answers, and there isn't a perfect way. I mean, every family's dysfunctional, every parent's making it up, and I, I worry sometimes that there come sort of trends or whatever the latest way of being, where, you know, we're all different, mm -hmm. and it's all equally valid, as long as the product is you know, healthy, independent yeah, people. I, mean, I think that we're all valid and obviously like we all love our, you know, children and we want the best for them, you know, regardless. But I think as well, we're here today to talk about yeah. feminism and, um, and yeah, I think, yeah, there's so many things that are s sort of swept under the carpet, you know, that we just don't talk about and there's silence around and, mm. and that's where, you know, your, your role as a father is so important to know that you're, you're also the go-to to talk about periods, you sure. know, because you, you've got good information and, and it's an open, caring household um, and that helps, you know, in, yep. in, the, in the long run. And Barbara, you were obviously prompted to write a book of advice for your daughters, so you're keen to engage with girls and with young women about being a woman. I often say, you know, girls can't be what they can't see. Did you feel a sense of responsibility writing a book like this, that you were setting yourself up as some kind of expert? And no, if so, no, no, I didn't. I really didn't. Because the book is quite light-hearted. Yes. And also, um, I would never claim to be an expert on mothering. I'm just the same as every other mother, which is that you are struggling. Every day is different. Every day is a challenge. Every day you do something good. Every day you do something rubbish. And... Um, what you hope to do is create at some, from the word go, an environment which is nurturing and in which they survive to adulthood. It's a really, really basic hope. Mm -hmm. You want them to be able to develop their potential. You want them to be content. You want them not to go out and get chills in their kidneys. 
You know, you just want basic things for them. You want them not to go out looking like um, every single hideous bloke who walks along past them is going to leer at them because they think they look fabulous, which they do, but the blokes are going to think they're looking available. I mean, you've got a whole series of things going on in your head that you want for them. And with any luck, that will work out. But when I wrote the book, it was just really angst. It was me getting rid of a whole pile of stuff I wanted to say, um, and some of it will not ring true to anybody else other than me. Other things might ring true mm. to everybody, I don't know. Um, you just, with your children, you just want the best for them, and that's all you can hope to achieve. And your, and your own contribution turns out to be sort of minimal. I'm going to put my panellists on the spot a little here. Luckily, we've bonded in the green room, so I don't think they'll be too upset with me asking this tough question. But one of the big social changes that I know I struggle with as a parent in the past decade has been their access to porn. Pornography's always been there, but now it's everywhere, and it's increasingly hardcore. University of New South Wales research notes that 28% of 9 to 16-year-olds have seen sexual material online. I know my little girl at nine was doing a research project on the World Wide Web, and so she typed in hot male to um, Google, but she spelt male M-A-L-E. And some of the images she saw, I wasn't quite ready for her to see at that particular young age. So it really means that for many parents, by the time they settle down to have the big talk, uh, it's, it's too late. And many of our children have already formed their ideas about sex based on perhaps a porn ideal. So how should we talk to our daughters about sex? And should we talk to them about the difference between porn sex and real life sex? They're all looking at me going, please don't ask me first. <laughs> Nigel. <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there's a, uh, two, two things I'll say. There, there's an American comedian who, who uh, has got a funny line that it wasn't until she was 19 that she realized she could have sex just with one other person. She thought it always had to be, because <laughs> she'd be brought up in the porn thing. Um, but th th there's a great TED talk called uh, Make Love, Not Porn yeah. by Cindy Gallup, which I think is uh, fascinating. And one of the changes fr from the generations is, it, you know, my, my parents could control my access to stuff. You know, the, yes. the prison warden sort of view of parenting, you know, quite successfully send me to a boarding school and you, you can't access stuff. Whereas now that control has been taken away and, and it, it terrifies me. But in a way, it's, a, it's like a higher level, a more mature version of trusting your children. Because there's one version, which is I will make Grace and Eve have a real view of lovemaking and sexuality and all those wonderful things, and I can control them from seeing hideous, horrible, you know, stuff. But I actually haven't got that option anymore. Yeah. So you have to trust that you can give them the right values and teach them how to think so that when, it's not an option for them not to see it. Mm. It is not an option, right. you know, they will. Mm. Type in anything worse than hot mail and they'll mm. see it. So it just redoubles the, the sort of the contract where you've got to pump them through the intelligence and values early on and, and cross your fingers. If there was a way where I could stop Grace and Eve ever seeing anything like that, that I would. Mm. You know, however tr tyrannical that is, I don't care, I would do it, but I can't. Mm. But Maya. it does become... It oh, does sorry, Barbara. Oh, I'm sorry, were you about to say something? Go on. Okay. <laughs> Be assertive. Okay, hang on. Okay. Um, but I, I mean, the, first of all, it, the, it's a given. They will yeah. see it. But, I mean, I think it does mean that you've got to start talking about sex from a very, very early age. And I, I know that I did talk to the kids from the minute, I was going to say the minute I could speak, but that was forever, from the minute that they could actually understand that there were ladies having babies in their tummy. And, and I remember thinking, okay, straight away, you know, boom, you say what that is, some, the man put his penis into the lady's vagina, and then there's there in the bit. Oh, yeah. 
and it kind of just became part of their understanding. Mm -hmm. And um, that's basic biology. Beyond that, you know, they're going to be much more influenced by what their peers say. You can sit there, you're still always going to look a bit po-faced when you're talking about sex because you're always going to try and be a bit controlling. And I mean, now it's infinitely more, as you say, infinitely more complicated because there is so much out there that they're going to be exposed to that feels kind of dangerous and disgusting. Whereas before, you thought it wasn't dangerous, disgusting, but of course it was. It's just as dangerous and just as disgusting, just not on a screen that they could access every single night or every day. I think it's very, very difficult. All you can try and do, I think, is um, form a correct attitude to it so that it What's the correct attitude? That you have it in perspective. That porn is something that is over there and has nothing to do with love. And it's to do with um, titillation, which can be extremely sexist and de demeaning to women. And is something that we really need to have an understanding of and exactly what, where the relationship is between men and women in this particular situation. And with any luck, other stuff that has come from your family values at home will filter into their judgment as well. Mm. But I think it becomes in intensely personal because by the time the kids are about 11 or 12, as everybody knows, they're kind of forming their own judgments about stuff anyway. Mm. And you're just providing a sort of safety net that you hope they won't fall through. Mm. I, I, have, I have to say, a, a confession here is, is this is a, I'm outing myself as a hypocrite because my wife asked me to have the talk with my twin girls and I completely messed it up. I, I just lost, I had them in a car, locked the door, driving them to water and, and I and I, all these things, she'd take me through a checklist of everything I should tell them about, and, and I, it's not my finest hour, all I said was, just say no to everything. Because that works. <laughs> <laughs> Maya, did you get the just say no talk? Um... Probably. No. <laughs> I mean, not really. I mean, I think that, you know, if everyone, all of, a lot of my friends as well have like these moments when they were like told about sex, you know, but <laughs> yes. I, I don't remember any talk because I think I just knew at, you know, from such a young age and in a way like um, I think because a lot of our families like we have to be explained um, about our conception and how we came into the world in a slightly more complex way than mm. most other families that um, it's an age-appropriate story that you have grasped from a very young age. And in that way, you know, I felt like I, I've always known, you know, how babies were made, how the many ways babies are made. There's this one kid who's mm. in the film that I'm making at the moment, he's like, he's like, well, we went to the hospital and got some spam and like, you know, went in and out of the hospital and went in and then we got, we put, went in and we came out and we put it in mum's tummy and yeah, like, that's how I came around. And I was like, he's like five. I'm like, okay. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, the sex talk, yeah, I sort of had that around, I suppose. But yeah, there's always been a lot of talk in my family, like around, you know, every image sexualizing women, you know, we have a big discussion about it. Mm -hmm. um, so so what's your, what yeah. was your family's attitude towards porn? I don't think I've, like, just ever really... I mean, a bit, I'm a bit older than the generation, the internet, you know, I always think I was in my teens when internet really, like, hit. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Not, just never been interested, really, never really mm. come across much of it. It's never been much of a conversation. Yeah, okay. Mm. Changing tack slightly, uh, I find that most parents, and, and all of us really, are juggling these extraordinary workloads where we're feeling completely stressed often and overwhelmed. And more so with my work with young girls, I see young girls feeling very stressed and overscheduled from a young age. We're asked to come in and talk to them about ways in which they can manage work-life balance. 
Nigel, how can you do that in your home? I mean, I know in your TED talk, you spoke very honestly about your own experience of working, uh, sorry, of balancing work and life. What sort of advice do you offer to that around your to your children? Gosh, uh, um, I, I don't really like the phrase work-life balance, mm. which may be weird given I, I, I give talks about it. I think it's an overused and misunderstood and trivialised uh, phrase. But, but I passionately believe that there's nothing trivial about having a successful career that leads to a lonely old age full of regret. And <laughs> what I, I mean, you know, and I genuinely think it's one of the hugest issues that society is going to face, where it's, it's not about work-life balance, it's about meaning. Mm. Finding meaning in your life, because this is not a joke, we're only here once. And it's trying to have a balanced view of a, a human soul and to promote the idea of conscious choice. Because many of us slide into a life, you know, you wake up, you're 60, you've been divorced three times, you don't know your children, you've had a successful career and it's all horrible not to give people the answer, but just say, think about it. It's not self-indulgent to have a think about how you would like to spend your 80 years on this planet and what legacy you would like to live. And for lots of people, and increasingly, I suspect, uh, there'll be lots of women who take the what was conventional route of building a, uh, a career. I was here just for, the, for the, the start of the previous conversation, and the first lady was talking about not wanting children and then getting to 38 and then deciding she did want children and not being able to have, I don't know her name, not, and not being able to have them and I, I wish I caught the end of it. But as in, to just to promote people to think about it because there aren't shortcuts. Mm. There, there, isn't, there, there aren't tips to doing it. All I say is take the time to pause and reflect and listen with the ear of your heart. Mm. Can I, just actually, I think this is a very interesting point because I, I think that it is the biggest challenge that's facing um, my daughter's generation now, is to try and find, I don't know how you say it without saying work-life balance, but you said it really well. <laughs> um, but there's a balance between the time that you spend on your career and the time that you spend at home. And for me, the choice when we were growing up, the choice was actually having a career. Having a career was brilliant. And the mm. choice that you had was have a career or stay at home. Yeah. And then we kind of conquered that, that women were able to get out and they were able to have a career. But now it's not that. The choice is, I've got to have this career because I can do it, but I need to earn this much money because life is now so incredibly expensive that if I've got kids, I probably need to have two incomes in this household. And I've got to, I also want to spend as much quality time with my children as I can possibly do it. Now, there's only so many hours in a day. I think the big issue for um, modern partnerships that have children in them is actually having enough money. And, and that is what limits choice, not anything much to do with feminism, with the greatest of respect, but to do with just how on earth do we actually earn enough to provide for these kids in the way that we were able to provide for them because we came from a very affluent period in working lives and we were able to afford houses, we were able to afford quite a lot of stuff for our kids that our own parents hadn't been able to afford. Mm. The next lot coming along, not nearly as fortunate. They're living in the middle of a massive global crash, financial crash, and, and property prices through the roof that have no relationship to what they can actually earn. You think, well, actually, where is the choice here for a woman who's saying, do you know what I really want to do now? I actually, um, I know I'm really good at my job. I'm a rocket scientist, but can I just be a rocket scientist after I've spent a bit more time with my kids? Because I really do want to have some time with my kids because I'm only going to get them at this age once. Yep. I don't know how you solve that problem. I think as well, like, there's... 
I feel like there's a lot of pressure personally for women. Like you have to you know, you choose between a career or having mm. kids. But like I don't see why you can't just do it at both at once, you know. And, and my parents definitely modelled that. You know, they're both teachers and they both took equal time off, you know, or number of days a week off while I was, you know, um, small. And, um, in a, and then I suppose financially there's always been an equality and an independence. You know, they've never shared bank accounts. Um, you know, they've never, I've always spent equal amount of time with them. Um, and there's never anyone who's sort of the boss or, you know, has got the money and then who's got the child. Like, I think you can have a career and have kids. It's like um, not be so uptight about having kids. Like, you can travel and have kids. You just put them on your back and do it. Um, yeah. I don't think that's the choice I'm arguing. I think no? that that's a given, that you can have a career and you can have kids. Mm. It's how do you actually find the time to do both as well as you can possibly do it. I, mm. I managed to do it, but again, we were living in a, a much more affluent time, so I was able to afford great childcare and I was able to mm. work at home. And uh, I think it's much harder now. And I think the demands of jobs are much greater. Mm. So people seem to work much, much longer hours. You know? And it's not, can I do it? Of course you can do it. Of course, you, but can you do it and be happy yeah. or as content at the end of doing it as, as mm. uh, you've just been suggesting? Mm. Speaking of women who perhaps you know, make incredible progress in terms of leadership and career. I often reflect on the fact that, you know, we live in times where we had a female prime minister and a female governor general and women are assuming leadership positions. Yet in my work with young women, I see incredible body image angst. Eating disorders are on the increase. We know that 25% of teenage girls said they'd like to change everything about themselves. And so I often think that the final glass ceiling is in fact our bathroom mirrors, particularly for this generation of young women. How, as women, can we model positive self-esteem and positive body image? Maya? Um, I mean, is this a struggle? Yeah, I mean, I think maybe it's a little bit about my conversation, what I said before, is just about seeing things and talking about it, you know? Yeah. And, and when, you, you know, there's, the TV's full of, you know, terrible, you know, um, objectification of women and and having with your you know with your kids conversations about it but I also think it's not just the responsibility of parents raising daughters it's no. collectively the responsibility of like the whole society to you know not have invisible areas and and to have you know and to talk about things and you know it's not to treat women differently like I can't imagine like I'm a filmmaker and I can't tell you how many times men try and carry my bags for me you know and yes, you know, maybe they're stronger or, you know, and people, I think that we, we treat women differently, um, whether that's subconsciously, you know, I do it, everyone does it, and just everyone being aware of, of what mm. they do, you know, don't buy the girl pink, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. One of but the things the, that I think is very interesting, though, is when I talk to teen girls, they do, as I said, um, experience incredible body image anxiety and they feel almost alone in that and I have to highlight to them you think you guys are really suffering try being an older woman in this culture I mean we are virtually invisible in terms of media and although we say to young girls you're beautiful the way you are we're forever lamenting the aging process and wanting to change ourselves is it a struggle to be an older woman in our culture where we really do worship youth um. Yes and no, I suppose. I mean, it's not so much a struggle. It's a, it's a personal challenge to cope with your body melting. Mm. <laughs> you, you, yeah. it, it's, it's, I don't really look around me and think, 
look at this gorgeous young thing, why don't I still look like her? I just look at the mirror and think, ah! You know? <laughs> Do you? <laughs> yeah, of yeah. course, because what's happening inside my head is exactly what was happening inside my head 20, 30 years ago. Mm. Nothing changes except the exterior. So it's kind of, it's not some, I'm not too bothered by aging and I'm not too mm. bothered by the whole cultural experience of it all, just that you don't like the look of yourself anymore. And it's a shock. Nigel, do you find that you worry about your daughter's body image? Because, of course, you know, you would see in the news and you would see um, reports about the fact that for, for teen girls, this is a huge issue. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. my... Uh, this, uh, confidentially, just between us, 50 people. Don't, don't tell <laughs> anyone else. But my father-in-law, uh, whenever my wife uh, goes home, the first and only thing he comments on is her appearance. So even after she just had twins, oh, you're carrying a few extra pounds. Mm -hmm. you know, and that's, you know, it's a generational thing. And again, so hopefully we're, you know, slightly better, so we try very hard not to do that. One of my twin daughters, God love her, sees the world through the prism of food. Right. Okay, we, we had, when we had four kids under the age of five, we had a gorgeous German nanny with us. Father died, she had to fly back to, to Germany. When she got there, we called and, you know, said, you know, how's the funeral and passed the, the phone to each of our kids in turn. When it got to Grace, she said, what did you eat on the plane? <laughs> right? So, you know, she wakes up at night going, I want cake. Right? Uh, so, and, and what do you do? Well, you go, so she's a gorgeous, wonderful angel, but slightly tubby. And you go, oh my God, I can't notice that she's tubby. I can't say that she's tubby. Oh my God. And so I, I, I agonize mm. about being the right father. Um, but I haven't got any, so I, I hopefully I'm not as crass as my father-in-law and saying, Gracie, you look a bit tubby, but you know, uh, you, you, you just struggle with it mm -hmm. data and just try and be positive. But also I think we have to live in, you know, have to live in the real world. Sometimes we're not allowed anymore in, a, in any area, not just feminism or, or, or women, but to actually pass judgment on anything. I, I caught the, the tail end of the biggest loser, whatever, the, you know, the weight loss program and, and there was some bloke who's enormous and he goes, well, it's no one's fault but mine. You know, maybe 10 stone in if someone had said, actually, mate, you are gargantuanly fat. <laughs> you know, stop now before you put on another 10 stone. Maybe go, oh gosh, you couldn't possibly say that. Well, you can, he's huge. So uh, any answers, let, let me know. Mm. Uh, all right, we're going to finish with, our, with, with a bit of advice that we can pass on and perhaps disseminate to the audience. What is the most valuable thing that you learnt from your own parents that you wish all daughters could learn? I'll give you a moment to think about that. What is the most valuable thing that you learnt from your own parents that you wish all daughters could learn? Uh, pants before shoes. <laughs> As always, Nigel Profound, thank <laughs> you. Oh, I think, um, yeah, I just think talk about everything and, and pick you know, make, yeah, have open, honest conversations about all little injustices, tiny things, you I know? want to be at your house. <laughs> it wants to be at Maya's house. That sounds fantastic. I'm, I'm loving all of these sort of menstrual flow conversations <laughs> over dinner and brilliant. I'm coming yeah. over for Sunday roast. Um, just one little sort of um, moment in that is that I, I had a really interesting um, moment in, when I was in high school we were in the, we were in the, playground like for me and a couple of my friends and there's this guy right who would just always come and flash us and we'd be like I feel like this this is actually quite a common thing for lots of women mm. who've had like the odd thing 
And the three of us had really different responses, right? One of my friends um, just sort of ignored it and was like, oh, just another guy doing something horrible. Um, one of my friends did a handstand so that her knickers showed right in his face and was like, bring it on. Welcome to our session on bringing up daughters. I thought we would start by looking at the family unit. In recent decades, our idea of family has broadened to embrace all kinds of households. Same-sex parents, adoptive parents, men and women who take time out of their careers to be stay-at-home parents, working parents, single parents. Every one of them has a different life experience and something unique to contribute to parenting. Maya, as the daughter of two mothers, you've written about your frustration about being asked so often whether you miss having a father. Did growing up with same-sex attracted parents change the way you see yourself and your potential as a woman? Um, yeah, I think definitely. You know, like in my family, we're all women. Like, even dogs are girl. So, um, you know, and I grew up in a family where um, I had two, you know, powerful, strong females to show me the many countless and exciting ways to do femininity. Um, and I think that, you know, that just goes to show that, you know, whatever behavior you take on, it means you can, you can do anything because, you know, one of my mothers, you know, mows the lawn and the other one, you know, likes to cook and they both taught me to drive and, um, you know, there's no separation according to gender in my family. Um, and that's really exciting. Um, I also grew up in a family where, um, you know, like, we always talked about every, like, small injustice, you know, that ever, ever happened. So, like, we'd, for an example, like, we'd pick up the phone and my mum would always, you know, be greeted by the voice that said, you know, can I talk to Mr. or Mrs. Newell? And she'd always make a point in front of me of saying, um, it's Ms. Newell and there is no man in this house, you know? <laughs> um, and I think that, you know, a moment like that would also be, you know, followed by a discussion of how, um, you know, like men get the, get the privacy, I suppose, of not being, you know, known if they're, you know, married or not. And women always have to, you know, um, have that uh, information available. And it's these small conversations which I suppose have, you know, developed a large part of who I am and what I stand for and what I believe in. Um, but yeah, we can talk Excellent. Well, Nigel, you've written a lot about taking time off from the corporate rat race to become more involved in parenting. Did doing that change your perspective on parenting, and particularly on parenting new girls? Um, in terms of parenting girls, not, not really. Yeah. Because, I mean, I, just because I didn't, I didn't have any views. So they, they couldn't be changed because I'm sort of making it up as I go along. Um, but in terms of parenting per se, uh, you know, I was that classic corporate warrior idiotic male who thought it was all very easy and, you know, one week in I wanted to kill myself because I, you know, couldn't get it all right. So I just realised how hard it was. Mm. And uh, Barbara, for you, I was really interested in the fact that your book, Because I Love You, was updated from your original 1997 book of advice for daughters. Did you find that writing the book or adapting it 15 years later meant that you needed to really respond to social changes 
We've certainly experienced many changes in relation to cyber world. So from with my work in young girls, I see parents particularly concerned around issues about cyberbullying, sexting. There can almost be hysteria around the fact that we're creating a generation of girls and their childhood is shrinking. So did you feel a need to respond to that? And if so, how? Not really, because my girls were considerably older and they were very able to look after themselves. So the changes that occurred between one book and the next were mainly in me, mm. where I had grown old by 15 years and become much less convinced about my parenting skills, and, but still had the <laughs> same hysteria that I had when I was in my full-blown mothering mm. and still wanted to protect them from absolutely everything. So poor things got the brunt of me saying, never sexed. If you email, never hit reply all. I mean, it was all stuff that they knew and had coming out of their ears, but it was kind of new to me, and I thought I had to tell them because I'd always been bossy and controlling. And uh, these things just don't pass. You just mentioned something then that I often experience. I've written two parenting books, and so whenever my daughter's upset with me, she'll say things to me like, hmm, this will be interesting in the new chapter, won't it? And uh, likes to throw my supposed expertise in my face. How challenging is it to be a parent, particularly of girls, who can be incredibly you know, astute at critiquing, and often rightly so. I mean, they pick up our flaws and highlight them to us. So how challenging has that been? It, it, well, it, it was less challenging when I thought I was always right. Yes. Uh, I think that for a large part of my um, parenting, um, I think I was a bitch of a mother probably, because I always thought I was right. I was very, very controlling um, and not humble. My own mother was incredibly humble, mm. and uh, which wasn't to say that she was a wimp, but it's just that she always made it out that we were kind of somehow, um, we knew more than she did. And I never allowed my children the privilege of knowing more than I did. <laughs> but, but now I can totally see that they really do. I mean, mm. the most... Um, the biggest learning curve for me as a mother has been since they've been grown up, where I realized that I, we did flukishly produce these fantastic girls, all of whom are, um, are very articulate and powerful women, who all know miles more than I do, because I, as you will quickly discern, know almost nothing about anything. And um, it's great for me, it's fantastic, mm. but you do have to become humble, which is not great for me, it's very difficult. Do you think the notion of parenting has become something that's almost a social construct, it's almost become an industry, this parenting industry. I mean, if you go into bookshops, there's books, including mine, I mean, there's, there's books on this subject. Do you think our parents worried about that as much as we do? What do you think, Nigel? Uh, I mean, gross uh, generalisation here, and, and, yeah. and I'm the non-expert, I'm not just the only man, I'm the, the only non-expert here, by the way. It yeah. is, I think my parents' generation under-parented, and, mm. and my generation over-parents. And I think, hopefully, my kids, my four kids, generation will you know get it get it in the middle but I mm. think we you know the, the amount of time and, and money and focus spent on stuff which is go it's, it's going over their heads mm. in reality it's about giving them the right values discipline love sending them out into the world with confidence and courage and compassion and joy and all the other stuff is sort of details mm. I, I, I think and I look at my my four kids I've got two sons and two twin daughters and my eldest uh, son, I completely overparented, and my younger son, I've completely underparented, and and trust me, there's not a correlation on how well they're doing. Well, there's an inverse one, but there's not a, a, mm. a positive correlation. Mm. Maya, what do you think? Did your mothers feel the need to perhaps overparent, or did they take this role particularly seriously, given they were almost reinventing? Um. 
I think my parents were probably pretty relaxed parents, actually. I actually mm. asked this, this question to them the other day, and I was like, you know, did you, like, worry about stuff, you know, because you, there weren't many other parents, you know, mm. same-sex parents doing this at the time. And they were like, oh, we were in our 20s. We just wanted a kid and just had one. And, you know, it was pretty straightforward, really. And I was like, oh, but I want you to worry. What did you, what did you think about me? Um, but, yeah, I, I've, I've always felt that my parents were very fair, you know. Like, they were never the really strict parents at school that only, you know, make their kid... I had to come home at 10 o'clock at night or something at a party. Or, you know, they were never the parents that just sort of let me go, you know, free reign. Um, they had rules and restrictions, but they, you know, I always knew that it was fair. Nice. Well, seeing it is all about women, I thought I'd ask a few questions that were more specifically feminist and gender orientated. In her book, Leaning In, Facebook COO Sheryl Sandberg cites research that show that parents treat sons and daughters very differently. Sandberg says that when a girl tries to lead, she's often labelled as bossy. I know I certainly was. Boys are seldom called bossy because a boy taking the lead as a boss doesn't surprise or offend anyone. She argues the fact we treat girls and boys differently from a young age is one of the reasons that we have so few women in leadership positions. Do you think that parents can subconsciously restrict the opportunities of their daughters? God, no. I think that's a horrible thought. Mm. I don't think... That, I mean, having had three daughters and there was no comparing um, them to the way I would have raised mm. a boy... And our genetic, our DNA in our family, all of our, the women are very strong women and mm. would be inclined to leadership, I think, and nobody's ever told them not to. Mm. My mother, who I keep saying was a paragon, but she was, raised us all to believe we could do anything if we chose to do it, and we all believed her. Mm. Um, and uh, I think it seemed to me when I was raising girls that you'd let them believe they could do anything that they wanted to do, and they all kind of have, and they've made very, very good decisions. But I don't, I think that's something that you just, it's almost an unconscious thing that you do. I can't imagine too many women in this auditorium, for example, who would in any way suggest to their girls that they're less able to or less wanting to lead. I think it's a personality thing. Lots of people just don't want to lead because it's not their nature to lead. But mm. anybody who's inclined to, male or female, I think probably can. I'm, I'm just not sure that I'm very comfortable with the notion that there's a blanket thing that says, it really is hard for girls to lead. I know that it seems to be true that they don't, but perhaps there are more factors involved than uh, mm. the world telling them that they're, they're not entitled to or they'll be punished somewhere or another if they do. Right. Well, if we look at the toy aisles, for example, I mean, starting from very young, they're incredibly gendered. I mean, there's the pink aisle, it's very passive with the Sleeping Beauties and the Pretty Barbies, and then there's the male aisle, which is all building blocks and action figures. Did your parents try and combat some of those gender stereotypes for you, Maya? Um, yeah. I like that you're giggling. I've got a feeling the answer's going to be yes. Yeah, I mean, I always say that when I was, you know, very, very young, like, was the first time, when I was about, my third birthday, I think, was the first time my parents ruined my life, which was that, you know, to their dismay, I was this young child who loved pink and, like, you know, really, you know, got into my fairy castles and tutus and, and you know, they'd just be like the mermaid in the bath for, like, hours and hours. And, <laughs> and they, you know, I think my mum really believed um, that, you know, gender is culturally determined and that, um, you know, it's, it's not nature. And I think in some ways I still believe that because we grow up in, a, you know, a society which is very gendered regardless of mm. what your parents, you know, instill in you. Um, but on this birthday, right, they were like, okay, we're going we're gonna to hold this experiment. So everyone has to bring her, like, 
trucks and cars and blue clothes. And they thought they were being really like, you know, sneaky here. And, and I just, I think I just cried the whole day. You know? <laughs> um, and then spent the majority of the next day, you know, transforming my car park into a fairy, comp fairy castle or something like that. Um, but I think that, yeah, it's an interesting point. Like while I think that, you know, I went through various stages, you know, I, had, I did have my stage where I tied my, you know, sarong to my hair to pretend to be Ariel because my mum's chucked it short, you know, mm. and then I had, you know, a stage where I really liked to climb trees and, you know, wear mm. bike shorts and, you know, play with boys. And, and I think we just go through these, you know, stages in life. And I think, you know, to be a feminist parent, um, it doesn't mean that you're, you know, you have to push your boys into wearing, you know, pink and you have to, and your girls have to like, you know, play with trucks or um, later in life, you know, that your girls have to be leaders, you know. Um, it just means you have to, and a friend of mine said this to me actually, um, who's also a gaby, and she said, you know, like we have, you just need to say here are all the colors and here are mm. all the toys and, and you can choose and they're all available to you. Um, but yeah, we get pushed into like, you know, being one extreme or the other and feeling disappointed when it, when it doesn't work out how you, mm. how you want it to. Love that. Nigel, yeah. you're part of the advertising juggernaut <laughs> that we're subjected to every day. <laughs> Do you feel that our children are very much at the mercy of marketers? And if so, how did you try and combat that as a parent? Yeah, I, I mean, much to, to back up what uh, Maya said, is for me, I, I think the, the role, uh, and again, this is just speaking personally, I'm not an expert in this, the role that Kate and I think of being parents is to try and teach our kids how to think, not, not what to think. Mm. And, and that can be quite challenging as parents. You've got to, you've got to let go because, you know, teach you to think you may choose the truck or the, the, or the fairy costume, whatever else, but you're trying to bring up independent adults. And, and, and I, I sort of think that the answers to this conference hopefully will be answered by the next generation who will have better mm. answers than we will have if we educate them to, to think. It's not about an outcome. It, I, I'm very nervous when people go in saying, but I want you to be you know, a, a female CEO or a, mm. or a male ballet dancer. You haven't actually, which is terrifying as a parent, you haven't actually got the right to define what your kids should be. You're mm. trying to give them the best chance in, in life. Give them every opportunity. So, so I've got two boys. And, and, and two girls, and it is challenging sometimes subconsciously, I'll ask my boys to take the rubbish out, not mm. my girls. Mm. I mean, I, I haven't thought it through, but you just think, say Kate will say, why do you always ask Alex to take the rubbish? And so then next time I'll say, Grace, you take it out, and she'll complain, whatever else. But it is to try and trust, you know, you know have, have the, the courage to expect greatness of our children. Mm. And, and try and, I mean, I, this is the wrong audience and conference to say this to, but try and look beyond gender. I know they're all looking at me, but, but and, and, and probably that's the next generation that, that does that. But I, but I hope in, you know, when, when my daughters are, uh, are our age, you know, Telstra isn't talking about how many female board directors they've got, they're talking about how many good board directors they've got. And, and, and I know things have got to go, you know, historically, mm. you know, that takes a long time, but, but I sort of think this is stage, whatever it is on the, the feminist journey, stage eight, and stage nine is, is making it non-gender. Well, interestingly, I was next, next going to ask you about the big F word, feminism. Um, in my work with young girls, I find that it's not a particularly popular term. So if I was to say to a group of schoolgirls, how many of you would identify as being feminist? 
there'd only be a very small handful of girls who mm. would raise their hand. I mean, by the time they finished working with us, they're very proudly amen sistering me because we deconstruct that for them. Yeah. But I think it's very interesting that it doesn't always have a good reputation. So is it time for us to reignite the conversation around feminism in our homes? And if so, how might we do that, Barbara? Hmm. I'm not even too sure what you mean. What do you mean by feminism now? How would you define it in today's terms? Gosh, that's a really good question. I mean, I think it's very much about... What, Maya? I'm thinking, thinking like, you know, like lesbians holding placards running down the street. <laughs> yeah. That's what the image that jumps yeah. in my mind. But well, but I'm yeah. not sure. I, I I'd be interested to hear your answer. So when you ask me the question, what's the term actually mean? Yeah. For me, uh, really engaging girls, for me as a young woman, discovering feminism was discovering my home. And it really helped shape for me how I would view myself and my relationships. And it was about justice. And so for young girls, when they hear the word feminist, they do have all these very negative media-generated stereotypes about what that might mean. So they don't think of it as a home place. They think of it as being a little bit frightening or a little bit intimidating or a little bit non-accessible. And really, we can all own it and we can all have our own brand of feminism, but there are some fundamentals that I think we need to agree on in terms of women being equal to men, not necessarily better, but I think that that core belief that there is still lots of work to do, it's easy to be complacent, um, is critical for me to get across to young women that we can't be complacent, the work is not yet done, and raising awareness about what those issues still really are. And I find it a very powerful tool. Hmm. Well, as a, as a mother um, raising three daughters, then to me it was just a given that um, a sense of their own um, worth was mm. fundamental to the way you wanted them to be raised, that they mm. understood themselves to be, to have the same um, entitlements as any man and to be treated with the same respect, um, to be offered the same opportunities. It was just a given. It was never... But it's not a given that society will give them that. It's a given that they have the right to expect it. But certainly their experience in society will be quite different to that. Mm -hmm. Well, I, speaking for myself, I can't, and um, I was obviously born the generation ahead of them, I never was particularly... Um, I don't think I was ever, I ever experienced any sort of prejudice where I thought I can't proceed because I'm a woman or I'm being treated badly because I was a woman. Having said that, there were, in our generation, men were incredibly free and easy with their sexual advances and mm. inappropriate remarks, which now they would never get away with. And, it, and for my generation, you just had to learn to batter it away and think they were absolutely ridiculously absurd people, which you did. But for me, there weren't that many experiences that I had to pass on to the girls to say, be careful here because this isn't going to be fair and you're going to have to be up against it. I think in all of our lives, you're going to have senses of injustice related to both being a woman or just being alive. You know, mm. just being, living in a, um, you know, failing democracy. You can mm. find things that are so frustrating. And in a way, identifying myself in any injustices uh, according to my gender kind of rankles with me. Obviously, you know, it's a given. I mean, I've got four kids, two of them are girls, two of them are boys. I love them all equally and they've all got... I mean, it's just a non-debate. Non but the issue for me is, is about, it's about humanism. I mean, we're, we're sort of earthlings. I don't, I don't self-define... I mean, obviously, I'm a man and blah, 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 but you go, yeah, but I'm, but I'm a human on this little tennis ball hurtling through space is how I think the future is going to be, where your daughters have all the options available to them that any other human should have. And then to make sure when you, you raise your daughters, you don't confuse you know, theory and idealism with, with some of the stuff that they are going to see. Because just because mm. something's right doesn't necessarily mean you should do it. 
So when I'm talking to Grace and Eve, when they are slightly older, they have every right to dress in a certain way and go to work. And maybe in 100 years' time, it would make no difference. But it's our job as loving parents in the real world to say, well, sweetheart, if you do go to the office dressed like that, you will be judged in a certain way. And yes, it's wrong, but it's also the reality. So it's, it's sort of tiptoeing the time. I want to get Maya in here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah. I think that, um, you know, I th it's, it's, it's not that great messages just, as, just to say that, you know, we're being humanists here and we're just like treating everyone equal because the reality is that we do live in a world which mm -hmm. is sexist in many ways and, and there are so many like everyday moments, you know, in my life and I think in all women's life when you're faced with like some pretty blatant, sec um, you know, sexism and you have to, as a woman, I think it's so important that parents provide their children with the tools to talk about it and be honest and open and have be able to speak, you know, and I think in in my family that was something which was always modelled, you know, mm. um, and even on little things like, for example, you know, just on the phone or, um, you know, for another example was that I remember, like you say, year eight or something, and I came to school and I just got over the whole, like, you know, uncomfortableness of just getting my period. And I'd come into school with my girlfriends and I'd be like, oh, I just started bleeding today. My boobs are really sore and, you know, all of this. And, and I remember, you know, my friends just being like, that is so shocking. Like, you don't talk about your flow in such a, you know, open <laughs> way. Like, what the hell? And, um, one of my friends in particular, she was like, well, in my house, like, I, you know, don't, I just don't put, leave my, you know, tampons in the bathroom because in case my, you know, my, bro my brother or my father might see it. And mm. she remembers, like, wrapping it up and, like, being really embarrassed, or leaving the bathroom, holding something and stuffing it in the bottom of the kitchen bin and, and, and you know, being embarrassed that her father would have to go shopping to, to buy tampons for her. And, like, in my house... You just, that's like dinner time conversation, you know? It's mm. like, oh God, you know, women's stuff. And, and for all, all of my friends, there's a sense of like women's business, you know? Mm. And I think that um, even me being a part of that, you know, my, my friends at school created a space where we would all talk about these things and become more confident about it and then talk about it with guys because, hey, like, you know, it's important for them to know what we go through mm. and that's part of being a woman and being a man in the world today. And um, yeah, I just, I think that, the, yeah, I think the most important thing that in terms of feminism that my parents have given me is, yeah, is the ability to speak about little things and not feel embarrassed about being a woman. Because they're actually huge things. And I love that you've just touched on a point that's really important to me. In my work with girls, we always ask them at the, at the end of the day with us, what did you think today would be like? And they inevitably say, we thought you'd be just another boring old bag giving us a lecture. Or something like, you know, we thought you'd be this really hideous old woman shaming us. And then they write, no offence, in brackets. Why would I be offended that they thought I'd be a boring old bag? Um, but how can we engage our girls to these incredibly important messages in a way that will have meaning for them without patronising or policing them? Nigel, you're a marketing man. How can we engage young girls? Gosh, I, I'm not sure I'm, I'm the right person to throw to. And I haven't been in the ad business for three years, just before uh, the, the audience starts throwing things. Um, That's I, no excuse, Nigel. No excuse. No, no. <laughs> no, no, no apologies. I mean, I, I, I'm just making it up as I go. I mean, so, so I'm not speaking as an expert. I'm just speaking as a, yeah. as a father and a family man. I, I, we just yeah. 
sort of approach each, each day as it, as it comes. But when, um, it's interesting you're talking about, you know, you know, first periods and things. My wife was, you know, on a girls' weekend in Melbourne when both my twin girls had their first period. Brilliant. Uh, um, but, but it was brilliant because there you go, well, you know, just, just deal with it. I mean, that's, you know, and, and for me, sometimes it can go, it can go sort of too much the other way where you haven't actually got to talk about certain stuff in every, in, in every, you know, th th there's, there is levels of comfortableness that are completely fine for people to have in different ways. Not make people feel shame, that's completely wrong, but, you know, maybe I don't want to talk about periods over, the, over dinner. And, and so, that, that's, yes. that's, that, that's sort of, so it's just a sort of, to be, to, to destigmatize and be comfortable in a family home, it, it's, you, I, I'm from, I was sent at the age of five to an all boys boarding school. I haven't got a sister, I've only got one brother. My mother, when she got engaged, this, this is completely true, it's not a joke, she had to resign, because that's what you did when you got engaged, you had to resign. No one thought that was unusual, that was just the world in the late 40s in, in Britain. So I come from a very, very traditional, male, old school sort of upbringing. Yet what I'm living is I've got you know, a wife and two sons and two daughters, and it's a generational change. It's sort of, it's just, I don't want to, these things are so important, but sometimes by, sometimes sort of getting on with life in a, in a loving, strong way is the best way in then letting, giving people, just like your daughter's turning out how they turned out, I don't know them, but that's not I mean, you look lovely. It's not because you're fantastic. They just yeah. turn. It's because they're fantastic. It's absolutely true. Yeah, it's and and true. so, mm. you know, you, well. you can relax not to have the answers, and there isn't a perfect way. I mean, every family's dysfunctional. Every parent's making it up, and I, I worry sometimes that there come sort of trends or whatever the latest way of being, where you know we're all different, mm. and it's all equally valid as long as the product is, you know, healthy, independent yeah, people. I mean, I valid and obviously like we all love our you know children and we want the best for them you know regardless but I think as well we're here today to talk about yeah. feminism and um, and yeah I think yeah there's so many things that are s sort of swept under the carpet you know that we just don't talk about and there's silence around and mm. and that's where you know your your role as a father is so important to know that you're you're also the go-to to talk about periods you sure. know because you you've got good information and and it's an open caring household um and that helps you know in, yep. in, the, in the long run and barbara you were obviously prompted to write a book of advice for your daughters so you're keen to engage with girls and with young women about being a woman I often say, you know, girls can't be what they can't see. Did you feel a sense of responsibility writing a book like this, that you were setting yourself up as some kind of expert? And no, if so, no, no, I didn't. I really didn't. Because the book is quite lighthearted. Yes. And also, um, I would never claim to be an expert on mothering. I'm just the same as every other mother, which is that you are struggling. Every day is different. Every day is a challenge. Every day you do something good. Every day you do something rubbish. And... Um, what you hope to do is create at some, from the word go, an environment which is nurturing and in which they survive to adulthood. It's a really, really basic hope. Mm -hmm. You want them to be able to develop their potential. You want them to be content. You want them not to go out and get chills in their kidneys. 
you know, you just want basic things for them. You want them not to go out looking like um, every single hideous bloke who walks along past them is going to leer at them because they think they look fabulous, which they do, but the blokes are going to think they're looking available. I mean, you've got a whole series of things going on in your head that you want for them. And with any luck, that will work out. But when I wrote the book, it was just really angst. It was me getting rid of a whole pile of stuff I wanted to say, um, and some of it will not ring true to anybody else other than me. Other things might ring true mm. to everybody, I don't know. Um, you just, with your children, you just want the best for them, and that's all you can hope to achieve. And your, and your own contribution turns out to be sort of minimal. I'm going to put my panellists on the spot a little here. Luckily, we've bonded in the green room, so I don't think they'll be too upset with me asking this tough question. But one of the big social changes that I know I struggle with as a parent in the past decade has been their access to porn. Pornography's always been there, but now it's everywhere, and it's increasingly hardcore. University of New South Wales research notes that 28% of 9- to 16-year-olds have seen sexual material online. I know my little girl at nine was doing a research project on the World Wide Web, and so she typed in hot male to um, Google, but she spelt male, M-A-L-E. And some of the images she saw, I wasn't quite ready for her to see at that particular young age. So it really means that for many parents, by the time they settle down to have the big talk, uh, it's, it's too late, and many of our children have already formed their ideas about sex based on perhaps a porn ideal. So how should we talk to our daughters about sex, and should we talk to them about the difference between porn sex and real life sex? They're all looking at me going, please don't ask me that first. <laughs> Nigel. <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there's a, uh, two, two things I'll say. There, there's an American comedian who's who, uh, got a funny line that it wasn't until she was 19 that she realised she could have sex just with one other person. She thought it always had to be, because <laughs> she'd be brought up in the porn thing. Um, but th th there's a great TED talk called uh, Make Love, Not Porn yeah. by Cindy Gallup, which I think is uh, fascinating. And one of the changes fr from the generations is, it, you know, my, my parents could control my access to stuff. You know, the, yes. the prison warden sort of view of parenting, you know, quite successfully send me to a boarding school and you, you can't access stuff. Whereas now that control has been taken away and, and it, it terrifies me. But in a way, it's, a, it's like a higher level, a more mature version of trusting your children. Because there's one version, which is I will make Grace and Eve have a real view of lovemaking and sexuality and all those wonderful things, and I can control them from seeing hideous, horrible you know, stuff. But I actually haven't got that option anymore. Yeah. So you have to trust that you can give them the right values and teach them how to think so that when it's not an option for them not to see it, mm. it is not an option, right. you know, they will mm. type in anything worse than hot mail and they'll mm. see it. So it just redoubles the, the sort of the contract where you've got to pump them through the intelligence and values early on and, and cross your fingers. If there was a way where I could stop. Grace and Eve ever seeing anything like that, that I would. Mm. You know, however tr tyrannical that is, I don't care, I would do it, but I can't. Mm. But it does become, it oh, does. Sorry, Barbara. Oh, I'm sorry, were you about to say something? Go on. Okay. <laughs> Be assertive. Okay, hang on. Okay. Um, but I, I mean, first of all, it, the, it's a given, they will yeah. see it. But I mean, I think it does mean that you've got to start talking about sex from a very, very early age. And I, I know that I did talk to the kids from the minute. I was going to say the minute I could speak, but that was forever, from the minute that they could actually understand that there were ladies having babies in their tummy. And, and I remember thinking, okay, straight away, you know, boom, you say what that is, some, the man put his penis into the lady's vagina, and then there's there in the bit. Oh, yeah. 
and it kind of just became part of their understanding. Mm. And um, that's basic biology. Beyond that, you know, they're going to be much more influenced by what their peers say. You can sit there, you're still always going to look a bit po-faced when you're talking about sex because you're always going to try and be a bit controlling. And I mean, now it's infinitely more, as you say, infinitely more complicated because there is so much out there that they're going to be exposed to that feels kind of dangerous and disgusting. Whereas before, you thought it wasn't dangerous and disgusting, but of course it was. It's just as dangerous and just as disgusting, just not on a screen that they could access every single night or every day. I think it's very, very difficult. All you can try and do, I think, is um, form a correct attitude to it so that... It What's the correct attitude? That you have it in perspective. That porn is something that is over there and has nothing to do with love. And it's to do with um, titillation, which can be extremely sexist and de demeaning to women. And is something that we really need to have an understanding of and exactly what, where the relationship is between men and women in this particular situation. And with any luck, other stuff that has come from your family values at home will filter into their judgment as well. Mm. But I think it becomes int intensely personal because by the time the kids are about 11 or 12, as everybody knows, they're kind of forming their own judgments about stuff anyway. Mm. And you're just providing a sort of safety net that you hope they won't fall through. Mm. I, I, have, I have to say, a, a confession here is, is this is, uh, I'm outing myself as a hypocrite because my wife asked me to have the talk with my twin girls and I completely messed it up. I, I just lost, I had him in a car, locked the door, driving them to water color, and, and, I, and I, all these things, she'd take me through a checklist of everything I should tell him about, and, and I, it's not my finest hour, all I said was, just say no to everything. Because that works. <laughs> <laughs> Maya, did you get the just say no talk? Um... Probably. No. <laughs> I mean, not really. I mean, I think that, you know, if everyone, all of, a lot of my friends as well have like these moments when they were like told about sex, you know, but <laughs> yes. I, I don't remember any talk because I think I just knew at, you know, from such a young age and in a way like, um, I think because a lot of our families, like we have to be explained um, about our conception and how we came into the world in a slightly more complex way than mm. most other families that, um, it's an age-appropriate story that you have grasped from a very young age. And in that way, you know, I felt like I, I've always known, you know, how babies were made, how the many ways babies were made. There's this one kid who's mm. in the film that I'm making at the moment, he's like, he's like, well, we went to the hospital and got some spam and like, you know, went in and out of the hospital and went in and then we got, we put, went in and we came out and we put it in mum's tummy and yeah, like, that's how I came around. And I was like, he's like five. I'm like, okay. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, the sex talk, yeah, I sort of had that around, I suppose. But yeah, there's always been a lot of talk in my family, like around, you know, every image sexualizing women, you know, we have a big discussion about it. Mm. Um, so so what, was your, what was your family's attitude towards porn? I don't think I've, like, just ever really... I mean, a bit, I'm a bit older than the generation, the internet, you know, I always think I was in my teens when internet really, like, hit. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Not, just never been interested, really, never really mm. come across much of it. It's never been much of a conversation. Yeah, okay. Mm. Changing tack slightly, uh, I find that most parents, and, and all of us, really, are juggling these extraordinary workloads where we're feeling completely stressed often and overwhelmed. And more so with my work with young girls, I see young girls feeling very stressed and overscheduled from a young age. We're asked to come in and talk to them about ways in which they can manage work-life balance. 
Nigel, how can you do that in your home? I mean, I know in your TED talk, you spoke very honestly about your own experience of working, uh, sorry, of balancing work and life. What sort of advice do you offer to that around your to your children? Gosh, uh, um, I, I don't really like the phrase work-life balance, mm. which may be weird given I, I, I give talks about it. I think it's an overused and misunderstood and trivialized uh, phrase. But, but I passionately believe that there's nothing trivial about having a successful career that leads to a lonely old age full of regret. And <laughs> what I, I mean, you know, and I genuinely think it's one of the hugest issues that society is going to face, where it's, it's not about work-life balance, it's about meaning, mm. finding meaning in your life, because this is not a joke, we're only here once, and it's trying to have a balanced view of a, a human soul, and to promote the idea of conscious choice, because many of us slide into a life, you know, you wake up, you're 60, you've been divorced three times, you don't know your children, you've had a successful career and it's all horrible not to give people the answer, but just say, think about it. It's not self-indulgent to have a think about how you would like to spend your 80 years on this planet and what legacy you would like to live. And for lots of people, and increasingly I suspect uh, there'll be lots of women who take the what was conventional route of building a, uh, a career. I was here just for, the, for the, the start of the previous conversation and the first lady was talking about not wanting children and then getting to 38 and then deciding she did want children and not being able to have, I don't know her name, not, and not being able to have them and I, I wish I caught the end of it. But as in, to just to promote people to think about it because there aren't shortcuts. There, there, isn't, there aren't tips to doing it. All I say is take the time to pause and reflect and listen with the ear of your heart. Can I just actually, I think this is a very interesting point because I, I think that it is the biggest challenge that's facing um, my daughter's generation now, is to try and find, I don't know how you say it without saying work-life balance, but you said it really well. Um, but there's a balance between the time that you spend on your career and the time that you spend at home. And for me, the choice when we were growing up, the choice was actually having a career. Having a career was brilliant. And the mm. choice that you had was have a career or stay at home. Yeah. And then we kind of conquered that, that women were able to get out and they were able to have a career. But now it's not that. The choice is, I've got to have this career because I can do it, but I need to earn this much money because life is now so incredibly expensive that if I've got kids, I probably need to have two incomes in this household. And I've got to, I also want to spend as much quality time with my children as I can possibly do it. Now, there's only so many hours in a day. I think the big issue for um, modern partnerships that have children in them is actually having enough money. And, and that is what limits choice, not anything much to do with feminism, with the greatest of respect, but to do with just how on earth do we actually earn enough to provide for these kids in the way that we were able to provide for them because we came from a very affluent period in working lives and we were able to afford houses, we were able to afford quite a lot of stuff for our kids that our own parents hadn't been able to afford. Mm. The next lot coming along, not nearly as fortunate. They're living in the middle of a massive global crash, financial crash, and, and property prices through the roof that have no relationship to what they can actually earn. You think, well, actually, where is the choice here for a woman who's saying, do you know what I really want to do now? I actually, um, I know I'm really good at my job. I'm a rocket scientist, but can I just be a rocket scientist after I've spent a bit more time with my kids? Because I really do want to have some time with my kids because I'm only going to get them at this age once. Yep. I don't know how you solve that problem. I think as well, like, there's 
I feel like there's a lot of pressure personally for women. Like you have to yeah, you choose between a career or having mm. kids. But like I don't see why you can't just do it at both at once, you know. And, and my parents definitely modelled that. You know, they're both teachers and they both took equal time off, you know, or number of days a week off while I was, you know, um, small. And, um, in a, and then I suppose financially there's always been an equality and an independence. You know, they've never shared bank accounts. Um, you know, they've never, I've always spent equal amount of time with them um, and there's never anyone who's sort of the boss or, you know, has got the money and then has got the child. Like, I think you can have a career and have kids. It's like um, not being so uptight about having kids. Like, you can travel and have kids. You just put them on your back and do it. Um, yeah. I don't think that's the choice I'm arguing. I think no? that that's a given that you can have a career and you can have kids. Mm. It's how do you actually find the time to do both as well as you can possibly do it. I, mm. I managed to do it, but again, we were living in a, a much more affluent time, so I was able to afford great childcare and I was able mm. to work at home. And uh, I think it's much harder now. And I think the demands of jobs are much greater. Mm. So people seem to work much, much longer hours. You know? And it's not, can I do it? Of course you can do it. Of course, you, but can you do it and be happy yeah. or as content at the end of doing it as, as mm. uh, you've just been suggesting? Mm. Speaking of women who perhaps you know, make incredible progress in terms of leadership and career, I often reflect on the fact that, you know, we live in times where we had a female prime minister and a female governor general and women are assuming leadership positions. Yet in my work with young women, I see incredible body image angst. Eating disorders are on the increase. We know that 25% of teenage girls said they'd like to change everything about themselves. And so I often think that the final glass ceiling is in fact our bathroom mirrors, particularly for this generation of young women. How, as women, can we model positive self-esteem and positive body image? Maya? Um, I mean, is this a struggle? Yeah, I mean, I think maybe it's a little bit about my conversation, what I said before, is just about seeing things and talking about it, you know? Yeah. And, and when, you, you know, there's, the TV's full of, you know, terrible, you know, um, objectification of women and and having with your you know with your kids conversations about it but I also think it's not just the responsibility of parents raising daughters it's no. collectively the responsibility of like the whole society to you know not have invisible areas and and to have you know and to talk about things and you know it's not to treat women differently like I can't imagine like I'm a filmmaker and I can't tell you how many times men try and carry my bags for me you know and Yes, you know, maybe they're stronger or, you know, and people, I think that we, we treat women differently, um, whether that's subconsciously, you know, I do it, everyone does it, and just everyone being aware of, of what mm. they do. You know, don't buy the girl pink, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. One of but the things the, that I think is very interesting, though, is when I talk to teen girls, they do, as I said, um, experience incredible body image anxiety and they feel almost alone in that and I have to highlight to them you think you guys are really suffering try being an older woman in this culture I mean we are virtually invisible in terms of media and although we say to young girls you're beautiful the way you are we're forever lamenting the aging process and wanting to change ourselves is it a struggle to be an older woman in our culture where we really do worship youth um. Yes and no, I suppose. I mean, it's not so much a struggle. It's a, it's a personal challenge to cope with your body melting. Mm. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, I don't really look around me and think, 
look at this gorgeous young thing, why don't I still look like her? I just look in the mirror and think, ah! You know? mm -hmm. <laughs> Do you? Yeah, of yeah. course, because what's happening inside my head is exactly what was happening inside my head 20, 30 years ago. Mm. Nothing changes except the exterior. So it's kind of, it's not some, I'm not too bothered by aging and I'm not too mm. bothered by the whole cultural experience of it all. Just that you don't like the look of yourself anymore. And it's a shock. Nigel, do you find that you worry about your daughter's body image? Because, of course, you know, you would see in the news and you would see um, reports about the fact that for, for teen girls, this is a huge issue. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. my... Uh, this, uh, confidentially, just between us, 50 people, don't, don't tell <laughs> anyone else, but my father-in-law, uh, whenever my wife uh, goes home, the first and only thing he comments on is her appearance. So even after she just had twins, oh, you're carrying a few extra pounds. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, and that's, you know, it's a generational thing. And again, so hopefully we're, you know, slightly better, so we try very hard not to do that. One of my twin daughters, God love her, sees the world through the prism of food. Right. Okay, we, we had, when we had four kids under the age of five, we had a gorgeous German nanny with us. Father died, she had to fly back to, to Germany. When she got there, we called and, you know, said, you know, how's the funeral? And passed the, the phone to each of our kids in turn. When it got to Grace, she said, what did you eat on the plane? <laughs> <laughs> right? So, you know, she wakes up at night going, I want cake. Right? Uh, so, and, and what do you do? Well, you go, so she's a gorgeous, wonderful angel, but slightly tubby. And you go, oh my God, I can't notice that she's tubby. I can't say that she's tubby. Oh my God. And so I, I, I agonize mm. about being the right father. Mm. Um, but I haven't got any, so I, I hopefully I'm not as crass as my father-in-law and saying, Gracie, you look a bit tubby, but you know, uh, you, you, you just struggle with it day to day and just try and be positive. But also I think we have to live in, you know, have to live in the real world. Sometimes we're not allowed anymore in, a, in any area, not just feminism or, or, or women, but to actually pass judgment on anything. I, I caught the, the tail end of the biggest loser, whatever, the, the, you know, the weight loss program and, and there was some bloke who's enormous and he goes, well, it's no one's fault but mine. You know, maybe 10 stone in if someone had said, actually, mate, you are gargantuanly fat. <laughs> you know, stop now before you put on another 10 stone. Maybe go, oh, gosh, you couldn't possibly say that. Well, you can, he's huge. So uh, any answers, let, let me know. Mm. Uh, all right, we're going to finish with, our, with, with a bit of advice that we can pass on and perhaps disseminate to the audience. What is the most valuable thing that you learnt from your own parents that you wish all daughters could learn? I'll give you a moment to think about that. What is the most valuable thing that you learnt from your own parents that you wish all daughters could learn? Uh, pants before shoes. <laughs> As always, Nigel Profound, thank <laughs> you. Oh, I think, um, yeah, I just think talk about everything and, and pick you know, make, yeah, have open, honest conversations about all little injustices, tiny things. You I know? want to be at your house. Who <laughs> wants to be at Maya's house? That sounds fantastic. I'm, I'm loving all of these sort of menstrual flow conversations <laughs> over dinner and brilliant. I'm coming yeah. over for Sunday roast. Um, just one little sort of um, moment, and that is that I, I had a really interesting um, moment in, when I was in high school. We were in the, we're in the playground like for me and a couple of my friends and there's this guy right who would just always come and flash us and we'd be like I feel like this this is actually quite a common thing for lots of women mm. who've had like the odd thing 
And the three of us had really different responses, right? One of my friends um, just sort of ignored it and was like, oh, just another guy doing something horrible. Um, one of my friends did a handstand so that her knickers showed right in his face and was <laughs> like, bring it on. Um, another, and, and, and I think that one of my friends walked up to him and was like, you know, um, you know, fuck off or something like that. And, you know, and I sat there and I was like, okay, let's deconstruct this. What's going on here, you know? Let's, you know, what are our options? Who is, you know, where did this come from? And I think, you know, in a way it's like, you know, it was all of, all of um, um, the way that we dealt with um, being mm. women, being sort of like in this little epicenter in that moment. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know who's right. I don't know who's right. I must be a similar parent. So I remember my little boy, Kai, at about eight, we went to Darling Harbour, and there was a billboard of a naked woman covered in chocolate, you know, licking herself, as, as you would find. And he sat there with his little mates, and he went, oh, that's such an example of sexual objectification. <laughs> that's my boy. Very nice. Barbara. Well, actually... It was probably quite, I don't remember you saying it, but I know that that's what we all came away thinking, which was that you should believe in yourself. Mm. I think that's what my mum led us all to believe, and it's what I think I would like my daughters to know, and that they would like their children to know. That if you can believe in yourself, you'll be That's okay. a very interesting point, because one of the things I've been struggling with in recent years is this sense of grandeur sometimes. I mean, I talk about this with my friends. We have very privileged children, really, in the grand scheme of things, and they're given incredible opportunities, and at times they don't seem to appreciate this. Um, you know, I would love them to be far more grateful and to write me long letters of praise and do acts of servitude to me, which they don't, and it disgrates at me. How do we create a generation of girls and boys, really, who are more grateful and appreciate opportunity, given the fact that they also live in the first world and, and do have many opportunities? I'd zoned out slightly. <laughs> <laughs> you warned me you'd do that. <laughs> he warned me earlier, I do zone out. <laughs> I thought you were looking over there, so I zoned and out. And that's <laughs> why I noticed your blank glaze, young man. 42, what was the question? <laughs> the question was, if we have children who yes. are in privileged families like our children yeah. are, and they have many opportunities, both girls and boys, how do we create a sense of gratitude? Send them to my house. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get them working. Gratitude, gratitude for what? For us as parents, or for the lives that they've got, or for being alive? Or, oh, all or of what? the above. Well, I don't think you do. I mean, yeah. I, I don't, and I nor should you expect it. You know, yeah. I think if, um, they're normal, everyday people. They will look around and be, and be grateful at the same time as being resentful as we all are, you know? I, I think, some things are good, some things are shit. Yeah, I mean, the risk of being serious for a second. I, I think it's important that all our kids should see the, the context that their lives are within. Because, you know, we're talking yeah. in Australia in this beautiful place mm. about issues of, you, you know, that are very important. But there are other people who are dealing with, you know, Absolutely. hideous stuff, female circumcision, uh, you, you know, just awful, awful stuff that happens in the world. So without giving them nightmares, it's important that, that the global context of their lives, mm. they're just aware that other people don't live like this. You can't mm. make them say, thank you, daddy, every no. day. But it's but, very difficult. When I yeah. explain to my daughter what a privileged young woman she is, and I explain to her what's happening in the third world, she sort of go, it's not my problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's difficult. It's an ongoing journey, That's perhaps. Right. Maya? Um, I think in the context of, you know, Feminism, sorry. Um, I think it's important to explain to your children like the, the history 
and, mm. and to know where we sit in, you know, in, in the context of where we are now, but also in relation to women's rights. Like, it's really important to know that it was only, you know, in the 60s that the women, women got the vote, you know, and, and I really... 70s you know, for Indigenous 70s. women. Yeah, yeah and, I, and I really value, you know, that those types of conversations to know that, you know, to, yeah, appreciate where, where we are right now. Brilliant. We're going to open it up to the floor. We've got time for about two or three questions. Or perhaps not, if there aren't any. Yes, my love. Oh, hang on a moment, we've got a mic. Hello? It's not, it's not so much a question, it's just an observation. It's been really interesting to listen to all three or four of you, Thank you. speak, because it's obvious, like, there's just so many different um, points of view and perspectives and, um, yeah, it's just, it's been interesting and funny and thank you. Oh, Aww, thank you. I really liked um, your point when you uh, mentioned how do you juggle and how do you make um, things work in a world where um, affordability for the house and the, for the kids mm -hmm. is such a great that put so much pressure on uh, young people and how they can actually do career and family life and bring up their kids to be really uh, composed and uh, empower them while you are constantly, constantly under pressure to pay the mortgage mm. and to pay the school and to have enough, to earn enough to actually pay the bills. Where is the time? I have my grandchildren that I look, I work full time and I look after my grandchildren to help my children because they're struggling. Mm -hmm. They promote a very, very um, highly educated professionals, but they can't make it. They still don't have enough because mm. the childcare for two kids per day mm. is almost $300. Mm. Uh, plus mortgage, plus bills, plus car, plus everything. How do you make that work? Well, Nigel's really discussed this in his books. In terms of not how do you make it work, what's the Excel spreadsheet, but in perhaps reprioritizing. Is that right? Yeah, I, I mean, I haven't got any easy answer because there isn't one. Um, but I, I think allowing yourself to look at every option that's out there and not mm. feeling guilty if you choose a traditional one. So well, I think what's going to happen potentially uh, as we go through the generations is some of the old uh, options, but willingly chosen, not because mm. you've been forced to do mm. it, but you go, do you know what? I'm looking at being a very harassed, you know, career man, and actually I prefer to be a stay-at-home dad, or I'm looking at a harassed career woman and whatever else. So there's a whole suite of options, and life is hard. You know, it, it, there, is, there isn't this, this option where, you know, you can have everything you want at the same time. No one, no one has that. And there, were, there was always struggles in previous generations, different ones, and there always are going to be. So I just think, as long as you're thinking about it, that's 80% of the battle. Oh dear, but, it doesn't, dear, dear. but it doesn't mean you can, I think you can improve every situation, but you can't solve every situation. I think Barbara wants in Sorry. here. Sorry, I would. <laughs> She's certainly not zoned out. Yeah. <laughs> I do apologise for that. It was only once. It was only once. No one noticed. And you did give me a free copy of your book earlier, so all is forgiven, Nigel. Yes. I, d I think that's uh, kind of neglecting the problem. 
I think we've got a big, big social challenge here on our hands. I don't think it's a there, there, pat, pat, go and think about something else to do. I think we are going to have to address it. And at some point, I mean, the fact is we have this ridiculous um, unaffordability of housing. So somewhere along the line, there's going to have to be a big social reassessment of exactly what's going on here. Now, I'm not an economist, but I would imagine it's over to economists to try and work it out, but they have to be social economists. I, don't, I just don't think we can say to people, you're okay, off you go, just think again. Maybe you need to go back and be a mum and you need to be a dad, or maybe what you need to do is you need to move right out to, to Dubbo and commute to Sydney every day to work at whatever you're gonna do. I mean, it's not that simple. It's really mm. not that simple. And I think it is creating, as we're observing, a, a, a very big challenge for a, an entire generation. It, it will lead to change, but I feel very sorry for the people who have been the poor filling in the sandwich, yeah, yeah. Mm. who are just not quite getting there. We'll grab another question here. Thank you. I think I've pinched someone's question. I was going to respond a little bit to... I've, I am a working parent with um, a young daughter and son, and I think part of it is about choice. We've made the choice to both work part-time and for the first four years it's been relatively easy and I was at home with the babies initially. And so you make, we know we can't afford a big beautiful house in the, where we really ideally want to live. So we've moved a bit further out and we made those conscious decisions. So I kind of question, I don't know about $300 a day for childcare, that seems a bit excessive as well. I think you make decisions based on what you value and I'm far from saying it's easy and you know, we're relatively lucky that we earn a similar wage, so um, I think it's complicated when one partner earns a lot more, whether it's the, you know, whatever the situation is. So it's yeah. more, more a comment that's, uh, it's certainly not easy, but it's probably not, it doesn't have to be as difficult as it's sometimes made out in terms of affordab affordability. There's a question two rows behind you. Thank you. Hi, I do agree there's uh, the economic issue, but then um, I keep Sheryl Sandberg's book and the things that I'm hearing today uh, talk about women taking leadership roles, but it takes away the choice of a woman who is financially secure to step off the career path and be a mom and, and then go back. And I think the different chapters of life are ignored, and I think there's that push at this point to lean in, basically, and lean into a career. Mm. And what do you think about the choice to be a mom for a while and then go back? It's a good enough choice if you can afford to do it. Yeah. For me, <laughs> I chose to start my own business, actually, when I had my daughter, because I realised that I was working in education. I was a high school teacher, but I was a senior education officer. My work was quite demanding and I wanted to spend time at home with my daughter. And I'd always been incredibly passionate about feminism. So I thought, if I'm gonna do a dream job, let's really make this a dream. And uh, so I guess I had to almost invent my own organization. And we have modeled ourselves to be incredibly family friendly. I mean, most of my, well, all my staff are women, but they can work from home if they want to. They can come in if they'd like to do that. They can bring their kids in if they want to do that. It's incredibly flexible. And because of that, I attract outstanding talent and we have an amazing company culture. So we've grown exponentially, which enables me to then feed this and, and to attract talent. So to me, it's also smart business. I mean, I think it's an incredible talent drain to look at these fan fantastic women and then say, well, unless you can be here from nine to five, five days a week, 
we can't provide for you. To me, that's, that's insanity. That's not good management. Um, so I've, yeah, had to create a new beast almost. Yeah, and I'd like to add that, you know, like I said before, um, you know, being, being a revolutionary parent doesn't mean that your, your child, your boy doesn't have to lust like pink. And it's in the same way that to be mm. a feminist in the world doesn't mean you have to be like a, you know, power slavering, you know, woman that never yeah. wants to have children. Um, you know, it can mean that you choose. It means, it means you have the choice and you have an equal choice to men to do, make that decision. And it also means that the conversations that you have around it are empowering because you stayed at home, not, you know, subordinate because you mm. stayed at home. It's about how we talk about it, not about um, what it is that you do. We might make, make that our final comment or our, our, our final um, discussion for today. Thank you so much for joining us. It was lovely to see you all here. And I believe that we should be signing books, so you need to rush down and get copies of our amazing books so we can sign them for you. Thank you very much.